Well, good morning, guys. I just got a piece of advice for you. If you haven't been thinking about doing something for Valentine's Day, think again. And uh, take, uh, take advantage of these roses if you need them. And if not, go do something. Just something. Uh, no excuse. One of the older men in our church was saying the other day, let's see, what day is Valentine's? Oh, yeah, the 14th. That was Ron Sadlow. I couldn't believe he said that. So if you all keep an eye on that man, he needs some help. Bad. But, you know, there are some days when you get really get extra credit uh, for saying something to your wife or giving her a gift. This is a day when you can blow it. So you just want to avoid not blowing it on Valentine's Day. All right? Well, let's turn our Bibles to Revelation 12, and we're going to look at some very, very important teachings as we uh, look at really a turn in the book of Revelation because uh, some will say that when we get to chapter 12, what... Uh, John is doing for us in revealing what he saw that day is to go from an earthly perspective of things that are happening, like the seven seals and the seven trumpets, the judgments of God that come, now to a deeper heavenly perspective. And the door kind of opens up for us. As a matter of fact, when you look at verse 19 that we concluded with last time, you get a, a verse that's sort of typical to introduce a new section. It's kind of the the big overture uh, before the, the curtain rises uh, because it says there, then God's temple in heaven was opened and within His temple was seen the ark of His covenant. So now we're seeing the ark, which is the very symbol of His covenant and His promises to us, His relationship with us and His presence. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and now we're going to even add a couple more things uh, than what we've seen before. An earthquake and a great hailstorm. So that not only concludes the section before, but now it, it, it shows us that something really big is going to be opened up for us. And what's going to be opened up for us is we're going to understand some of the chaos in our world. Uh, just uh, not too long ago, I'd had about three or four really negative things happen all in one day. And uh, all of them my administrative assistant, Pam Ace, was aware of. And so toward the end of the day, I was just walking to my office and I said, what is going on today? And she said, it's from the devil. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then we looked at each other and realized, you know, she's right. <laughs> you ever have a, have a day like that? And one of you told me you felt one day like that, that cartoon. I've forgotten which cartoon it is now, but the, the guy's just walking around with a cloud over his head and everything's going bad. And he looks up and he said, why, God? And the cloud splits. And a voice comes down and says, some days you just tick me off. Uh, <laughs> And <laughs> maybe, maybe some of you have felt that way. <laughs> There's got to be an explanation for this. And well, hey, look, uh, if you feel that way, you're in good company because that is the way the churches in eastern or western Turkey were feeling because they were being persecuted. Everything was going wrong. They said, what in the heck is going on here? That's, that is it. It's from heck. It's from hell. And uh, we need to understand this about some of the spiritual realities in our world that will explain some of the things that are going on. So if you take your Bibles, we're going we're to look at the first six verses of chapter 12 to begin with, and we're going to see something very important here as we look at the whole idea of a, a dragon, and that is the devil is a loser against Christ, but he, he's around. Let's look at him and Christ in uh, Revelation 12, 1 through 6. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. 
She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Okay, what uh, John is seeing is the reality of the devil. And you better believe he, he uh, exists. Uh, There are two big problems that men can make when we think about evil or about the devil. First of all, uh, to think the devil doesn't exist. And there are some other schemes for figuring out where evil comes from. Some just see it as an impersonal force. Or some would describe it as merely the absence of good. Uh, Those are very prevalent sort of philosophies that are available to us. But the Bible has a different view. The Bible says it's actually a personal force. Uh, There's a personal being. And he's after you, as a matter of fact. But first of all, we're going to see that he's after Christ, and he's not going to win the battle. What we see in the first two verses is, first of all, something about Christ. That he comes from the covenant people. Why do I say that? Well, we're told here there's there's a sign, and it is a woman. Now, there are different interpretations of this. The preterist has one view. Uh, the uh, futurist would have another view. Uh, the woman, uh, from the futurist point of view, would be uh, the Old Testament church, generally speaking, or it uh, could be the Jews who are left behind after the rapture, and they're the ones who are going to go off into the wilderness. In fact, some would say that's uh, exactly what happened, that you had the believing Jews going off into the wilderness at the destruction of uh, 70 A.D., but that they'll go off into the wilderness again uh, when Christ comes back during the, uh, or rather after Christ takes his church off, uh, that they will go off. So some would see the woman in different perspectives, but it seems clear to me anyway that this woman is giving birth to the child who rules over the nations, and this child is clearly Jesus Christ who rules over the nations. So it, if you follow the scheme that what John is actually seeing is a repeated version of all of history, And we saw that that interim period, 1,260 days, for example, really describes the interim period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's the period in the wilderness that's being discussed here. So that's the reason we say that Christ came from the covenant people. The the woman is the old uh, old covenant people. Now, this battle between the woman and the dragon, if you will, goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And you remember that When Adam and Eve fell, God pronounced a curse. The curse came from God because we had disobeyed and had followed the temptation of the evil one himself. And at that time, uh, God cursed Satan himself. And he said to Satan, you will bruise, uh, there will come a seed from the woman and she will crush your, and he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. So from the very beginning at the curse, God pronounced that a promised seed of the woman would come and that he would eventually triumph over the serpent himself. 
But he said about the serpent, you will bruise his heel, which, of course, he did uh, as, he, as Jesus died on Calvary. So that conflict was set up from the very beginning. Now, it's interesting that Eve was named Eve by Adam and before they left the Garden of Eden. And Eve means mother of the living. So even before they left the Garden of Eden, Adam was professing his faith in the promise of God that no matter how disastrous things appeared at that moment, the worst moment you can imagine, uh, even then, Adam believed in what God was saying. So she was named Eve. Then we see in Galatians chapter 3 and 4 that the seed of the woman is actually Christ. Christ is the seed. And what Paul goes on to say is that what uh, Moses was talking about in Genesis 3 was precisely Christ, the Messiah. Now, the, there was a seed of the woman that led eventually to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and many seeds, but the seed, singular, was Christ. Now, when you see this description of the woman here, you see that she, um, she has, uh, she's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head, and so on. If you were to look in Genesis 37, 9, in the dream that, that uh, Joseph had about uh, the moon and the stars bowing down to him and so on, uh, that's where this imagery is coming from. So that the, the whole idea of the woman seems clearly to be Old Testament Israel. And then when we look at the child, it brings back memories of Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder and so on. So Christ is clearly shown here to be coming from the mother uh, the old covenant people, the nation of, of Israel, as God had promised from the beginning. Now, secondly, in verses 3 and 4, we we're going to see that the devil wants to destroy Christ. You have to understand that when you feel like you've had one of those days when the devil has really gotten a hold of your rear end, that it wasn't, it's not you in the first instance he's going after. Uh, don't uh, exalt yourself too much. Uh, you know, out of all the people in the universe, he didn't pick out you that he thought would be the most strategic, you know, to, to take out. Uh, <clears throat> it starts with Jesus. Uh, there's an enormous red dragon, and he uh, stands, you see at the latter part of verse 4, in front of the woman who is about to give birth, birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. That's his strategy. He wants to destroy Christ. We're going to see that the reason he's after you is because he can't get his hands on Christ anymore. So he'll take second best. He'll go for you. But let's look at him. First of all, he's awesome. Do not underestimate uh, the devil himself. Uh, whenever he's presented in the Scriptures, he's all, obviously presented as very evil, but he's also presented as very powerful. And it would be silly for us to think that we can just simply on our own stand up and rebuke him. Uh, in fact, you'll see in the Scriptures usually that the saints are calling out for Christ to rebuke him. Christ, this is one you're going to have to take on. Uh, and so don't underestimate him. Here we're told he has seven heads, which probably represents cunning wisdom. Uh, he's very smart. And he's a better theologian than anybody in this room and anybody in this world. I'm not saying he believes the theology in terms of obeying it, but he believes it in his head. He knows it's true. That's what's ticked him off. Is because he knows that Christ is Lord. He knows that Christ is in charge of everything. He knows that he's doomed and his time is short. He's very good at theology. And he's very good at throwing you off track. And he doesn't know what's in your mind like God does. But he does 
uh, know what comes out of your mouth. And he does observe uh, externally. And so he knows you well enough to know how to tempt you. He probably knows your weaknesses. Uh, Not probably, he does. He is your sworn adversary. And he will look for any opportunity to exploit you. So you can just count on it. With those weaknesses in your life, he's after you. And, you know, if you've played on an athletic team, uh, you know that the other team is scouting you and knows your weaknesses. The higher level you go in athletics, the more it's so. You can imagine in that Super Bowl, they knew every little move of every player. And they knew that they had studied the quarterback carefully, listened to his calls. They had studied all the receivers, all the linebackers. They know all their, their little moves and every weakness that they have, and when they're a nanosecond off and moving one direction or another, and how they can exploit those weaknesses. That's part of a scouting report. And if you think that the devil has scouted you any less than an opposing team on the Super Bowl game, you've got another thought coming. So he's very aware of your weaknesses. You better be aware of them. And it's usually the case that the devil knows your weaknesses better than you do. And so we've got to study our weaknesses and know how to defend ourselves. And there are ways in which we are given to defend ourselves. And they're very powerful defenses. But the the devil is very cunning, very sly. And he was able to take an innocent man and woman who were promised no problems in life whatsoever and to talk them into doing the exact opposite of what the living God told them not to do. He has a lot of cunning. Ten horns, which means he's very powerful. We don't mess with him. Uh, we call upon Jesus Christ to mess with him. And he comes knocking at my door. I just say, Jesus, will you please get that? Uh, there's no way I'm going to that front door, and I'm going to confront him on my own power and strength. So ten horns, uh, which a horn uh, means something of power, as you will see in Daniel's revelation. So he, is, he has great power. Seven crowns. He's very influential. He can persuade you. You know, when you're, when you're listening to someone else's rationale for something really stupid they did, you're going, what the heck does that guy think? Does he think I'm stupid? Well, here, look how stupid he is. He convinced himself with that rationale. Uh, he not only came up with the rationale, but he got convinced by it. We're very susceptible to being influenced by the devil's rationale. And then you, com- you add, that, add to that the fact that we, we have our own rationale. You know, we're not just... Uh, we're not just empty vessels through whom spirits are flying, you know. Uh, one moment it's the Holy Spirit, the next moment it's the devil. No, we have our own opinions too. Uh, when we deal with sin, we have to deal with the world, the broken world out there that provokes us and elicits us and induces us, the flesh, which is our own fallen being, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the great trio there that's, that's after you and trying to eat your lunch. And so we contribute to, to the Satan's activities by cooperating with him far too often. There was a little girl who uh, one day walked over to her little brother. She kicked him in the shins and pulled his hair. And, of course, he went wailing to his mother. And, and her mother came to her and said, Now, Susie, why did you let the devil convince you to kick your brother's shins and pull his hair? And she said, Well, Mama, the devil did convince me to kick his shins, but pulling his hair, that was my idea. Uh, and so we are very able to come up with our own little schemes, but we let the devil influence us. We come up with this crazy rationale. And, you know, uh, some of you guys, you know, have been involved in, in affairs or uh, premarital sexual uh, liaisons and so on. And if you talk to a pastor, we're sitting there looking at you, 
and we're talking about what the Bible says and talking about what's in her interest and what's in your interest, what's in your wife's interest, and we get some of the dumbest stories out of you. You, you can't believe some of the dumb stories you tell us. And then, you know, we try to be nice and say, well, that's interesting, you know, and then try to work, work our way through to sanity. But you can't believe what you're coming up with. We're, we're capable of all kinds of stuff. And my wife can't believe the stuff I come up with either. I mean, it's, we, we're all capable of being influenced by absolutely devilish thinking. And what you want to do as you grow and mature is to be able to recognize the difference between heavenly reason, true reason, reason that's really representing the state of affairs and some stupid ideology or rationale that you've come up with to justify the world, the flesh, or the devil. The devil is very powerful in giving you some of these ideas. And me too. And then he has a destructive tail. Knocks a third of the stars out of the heavens. I'd say that's pretty destructive. And this imagery once again comes from Daniel 8 with the real power that's given to him. That's all that's being said is that something cosmic has happened here. It's not just about you and your fight with the devil. It's not just about Jesus Christ in the flesh. It's a cosmic rebellion. And he is wreaking havoc on the earth. And then notice in the latter part of 12.4 that he is not only awesome, he is very evil, uh, he is seeking to devour. And, of course, uh, the Scriptures teach us that when Jesus Christ was an infant, that Herod the Great saw Jesus Christ as a rival. Can you imagine anything more evil than you would see that the, the birth of the Son of God is your personal rival instead of your Lord. There's the height of human evil. And that's exactly the way Herod the Great felt in, in the year 4 or 3 B.C. Well, Herod died in 4 B.C. So, or this was right at that time, 4, maybe early 3 B.C. And so he goes after Jesus. Uh, and in order to do it, he decrees that all the infants, uh, infant males under two years of age in the Bethlehem area will be put to death. What incredible evil. And uh, here you have a picture, and John was quite aware of this, of course, in seeing this vision, that the devil was just sit, sitting there in front of the woman waiting to devour the baby, just like Herod the Great. And, of course, what we're told by Jesus in John's Gospel is that the devil came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his whole strategy. He is immensely evil. And sometimes you'll see things in life and you just can't imagine where in the world did that come from. Well, uh, take another thought about the one who's opposing you. He's capable of unbelievable evil. And then in verse 5, we see the frustration of the devil. He cannot destroy Christ. Why? Because first of all, Christ has been given to rule. And you'll see that uh, what the text says is that uh, the uh, child, uh, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations uh, with an iron scepter. So this comes, of course, from Psalm 2, where we're told that he will rule. And in the life of Jesus, you'll, you'll find uh, his dealing with the devil. This is very interesting. From the very beginning, when Jesus is baptized and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. We're going to come back to this whole theme of wilderness in a moment. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and then while he's in the wilderness, what happens? He's tempted by the devil. So there's an intentional setup in his life. 
And in that wilderness, and of course Lent uh, that we just began yesterday, is a 40-day period, excluding Sundays, until we get to Easter. So we're in Lent, which just comes from the German Lengthen, which means length, or the, the days start to get longer in the spring. Uh, that's where the word came from. So we just call it Lent. And it's a season of wilderness, a season of probation, a season of self-examination, a season of wilderness, a season of getting away and thinking and contemplating and facing the Lord and also facing the work of the devil in our lives. So it's a very important season for the church, just as Jesus went into the wilderness. Now, when Jesus goes into the wilderness, why did he do that and why did he do it for 40 days? Because... What else do you remember about 40 in the wilderness? The children of Israel. When they were delivered out of Egypt, before they come into the promised land, they go into the wilderness for 40 or it could be 42 years. Two years until they screwed up and then they had to be disciplined for 40 more years until that generation died off and then they could go into the promised land. So this, this number 40 or 42 has a, has a symbolism of probation or of waiting. And what does it symbolize? It symbolizes the life that we're in. Because if you've come into Christ, you've been redeemed, you've been delivered from the clutches of the evil one, just as Israel was delivered from the clutches of Egypt. And you have a promised land ahead of you when God brings the new heavens and the new earth down from heaven and you will enter your Canaan, your promised land at that point. So where are you now? You're in the wilderness And what's happening to you? You are being tempted by the devil. So we too are being prepared. We're being uh, enriched. We're being challenged in the wilderness to get ready to take possession of everything that he's promised us. Now, when Jesus went into the wilderness, if you will, keep your finger there in Revelation, but turn to the first book in the New Testament, the first uh, book in your New Testament, Matthew. And let's look at chapter 4. And uh, we are told that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. This was very intentional because Jesus came to this earth to take the devil on right face to face, to despoil his kingdom, to challenge him, and to defeat him for our sakes. So this was a very strong military action on the part of Jesus Christ. And you'll see when he enters his public ministry, first thing he does is he goes on our behalf back into that wilderness where we're living and he's taking on the devil and let's see how he does it. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You ever felt hungry? You ever had an appetite that you really wanted to satisfy? You wanted a little bit more money than you had? You wanted a little bit more sex than you're getting or with a different person? You wanted a little bit more popularity than you had. You had this appetite. Jesus had an appetite too. He was fully man and he was hungry. So now what happens? The tempter came to him. See, the tempter comes and meets you in your appetites. He knows your physical strengths and your physical weaknesses. And he knew at this moment that Jesus was physically weak. And so he takes... And Jesus, by being weak, is inviting the onslaught of the devil. And you in your weakness, you'll see him too. So he comes to Jesus in his weakness while he's hungry. And what does the tempter say to him? If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If God really loves you, he says, if you are not the Son of God, but if you are a son of God, 
Don't you think he'd be treating you a little differently than he is right now? I mean, you say that you think God loves you. You say you think you're going to heaven. Look at you. You think God would treat somebody like that he loves like you? Let you look like that? You ever looked in the mirror lately? Think God's been kind to you? That's what I say to myself. Some of you guys, you know, you're really handsome, okay? But, uh, you know, you get all kinds of things. You think if God really loved you, He'd let you have this cancer? You think if God loved you, He'd let your mother die? I had a guy tell me in a restaurant one time, he really had a severe problem. He was depressed. He was, he was serious. He was actually in tears. I said, what's wrong? He said, this morning my dog died. And I don't know if God exists. And, you know, I know, you know, I love my dogs too. And when they go, I'm sure I'll, you know, shed a tear. But uh, to question the existence of God. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's amazing. When you, when you get hurt, when you, when you get bereaved, when you get wounded, you, you will begin to question whether God exists. And then if He exists, you'll start to question whether you belong to Him. That's just, that's the nature of being in the wilderness. So the devil knows that. And so he goes up to Jesus. You hungry? Uh-huh. Well, now see, you're, you're the Son of God, right? Well, it seems to me Son of God uh, ought to have anything He wants. So he goes to him, he tempts him with that. And what does he say? Turn it into, turn these stones into bread. So Jesus, why don't you use your power and your privilege to get what you want? Uh, when Bill Clinton was explaining uh, his shenanigans, he said, I did it for the worst possible reason simply because I could. That is, I had the power to do it and I just did it. Uh, some, some took that to be a flippant statement on his part. It really wasn't. He was trying to make a confession and saying it was really evil because I simply had the opportunity to do it and I just did what I had the power to do. And a lot of fathers do that with their children. They just get their way because they can do it. They're not asking about justice. They're not asking about love. They're not asking about self-sacrifice. They just do it because they can do it. A lot of people in business who have worked long enough to be at the top, they just treat their, their employees pay them the least they possibly can so they can have the highest profits they can. Why? Because you can do it. And you just check your competition. If nobody else is paying them any more than you are, you're fine. Just do it because you can do it. That's the way most people think. Just turn these stones into bread. Just do what your power, what your power will allow you to do. That's from the devil. That's not from the Lord. Notice what Jesus says. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does Jesus do? He takes the sword of the Spirit. On our behalf, He is showing us how to deal with the devil. Gentlemen, this book is the power of God. And you commit it to your heart. You read it and study it. You memorize even its very words. And when those moments come, you take that sword and you slash and you'll find the devil will flee. Jesus Himself, the Son of God, takes the Word of God. He doesn't just say, Satan, who do you, you know who you're messing with? No, He takes the Word of God and applies it aptly to His situation. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. He knows His Bible. And he simply is going to confront the devil with the Word of God. And gentlemen, I say to you, you cannot confront the devil on reason. Reason is very important. It's a divine gift. But reason must be brought into subjection to the Word of God. Reason has a certain power, but it is not powerful enough to confront the devil. What reason will do 
when it confronts the devil is to morph into rationale. Ration morphs into rationale for all kinds of devilish behavior when that alone confronts the devil and when he's tempting you. You must confront the devil with the Word of God through reason, applying it to the case at hand. So you use your reason. But you're not resting on your reason. You're using the powerful sword of God. That's exactly what Jesus does. He does it three times. So that's what you get in Matthew chapter 4 is that Jesus is taking on the devil. He rules over him. The Word of Christ is going to put the devil to to flight. And you'll see that at the end of that section when the devil leaves and the angels come and attend the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus shows how to exercise power as a child of God even in our wilderness. And then in Luke 10, you'll find, we won't turn there for time's sake, but you'll find that Jesus in His miracle-working power and in the miracle-working power of His apostles is once again despoiling the kingdom of the evil one. So Jesus says that when someone asks about some of the miracles He performs to cast out the demons and so on, He says, how can this be done unless the strong man is bound? So when Jesus came, He bound up the strong man and He constrained him and is taking advantage of him and going into His kingdom. Isn't it interesting that uh, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is in a synagogue, and I've been in that synagogue, or at least the 4th century version of it that was built over it, but the foundation of that 1st century synagogue is still there in Capernaum. You can go to Capernaum and see some of the foundation stones of that synagogue. Jesus walked into that synagogue and He began to teach. And what happens? Demons start coming out of the wall. Why? Because they come from the father of lies. The devil's a liar. Total liar. And he hates the truth. And Jesus always speaks the truth. Jesus is also speaking words of kingdom, words of dominion. He's taking over. And it causes the entire underworld to come to the surface. And then, of course, he's lopping their heads off one at a time. And you'll notice that when he meets the gathering demoniac in Mark chapter 5, the gathering demoniac comes to him. You know, the disciples didn't want to go anyway because it was on the eastern side of the lake and their mom has told them never to go over there because they're devil worshipers over there. Sure enough, Jesus takes these little Jewish boys, <laughs> these disciples, over into the land of the Gentiles where they weren't supposed to go. And, you know, Peter is so self-satisfied, he's just convinced that Jesus, and this is not in the text, this is my speculation, Peter is convinced that Jesus may be a little bit unconventional, but he ain't stupid because when they go across to the land of the Gentiles, at least they go to a wealthy pig farm. I mean, it's, it's the land of the Gentiles and it's a pig farm of all places. They aren't supposed to touch pigs. You know, so it's really an unclean situation. But here it's a wealthy pig farm because they lo- we know there are thousands of pigs there. And so uh, Peter is trying to convince the other disciples, I assume, you know, this is OK, you know, because we're going to we're going to go into this into this land of the Decapolis and we're going to start with the wealthy people. And obviously we started here with wealthy people in this rich. Look at all these pigs here. This man must be a owner of, you know, a couple thousand pigs. Uh, we'll, we'll reach him first. Watch Jesus. So, sure enough, after Peter had obviously or probably been speculating with his disciples, out of the woods comes the first customer. <laughs> this naked guy, you know, with chains hanging off his arms. and uh, A guy who was a demoniac. He's full of demons. And we're told that there was a legion of demons in him, which probably meant 6,000 demons. 
And I can see Peter. Oh, no. You know, our, our band is ragtag enough. Are we going to take this guy, you know, a naked guy? Yeah. I mean, what, what would you do if, if your pastor had an altar call on Sunday, you know, and first guy down the aisle didn't have any clothes on with, with iron coming off his arm? You know, I think I would need another pastor, you know. This guy's attracting the wrong crowd. What, in my old home church, the people got really upset because the new pastor came in. He started attracting the wrong crowd, and they got rid of him. And you can imagine how the disciples must have felt, you know, when Jesus was attracting the wrong crowd, naked demoniacs. Uh, and this guy was so bad that he, he would beat up people. He lived in the graveyard. And he would beat up people at night. And we're told that when he got tired of doing that, he just beat himself up. You know, he was all cut up. I mean, that guy was nuts. Totally nuts. And you remember what Jesus did. He spoke to him. And then he, told, he spoke to the demons. And told them, told them to come out of that man. And they did. And they said, send us into the pigs. And it looked as though Jesus was the perfect English gentleman who then... Okay, you want to go into pigs? Go ahead. So these 6,000 demons go into 2,000 pigs. That's, as I count, three demons per pig. <laughs> I mean, pigs are wild enough. But with three demons in them each, they were nutso. And these pigs start screaming. And, scr- and they went all the way and went down to the lake. Now, the reason this is so important is that uh, the word abyss is used there. The, the demons said, we don't want to go to the abyss. But in Hebrew cosmology... Uh, that's cosmology, not cosmetology. Uh, cosmology, the abyss was at the bottom of the lake. So Jesus looks like he's just acquiescing and letting the demons go where they want to go. But they go into the pigs, which are unclean. So you have unclean spirits going into the unclean pigs. And then they go over in the lake and go down to the abyss. Jesus completely takes over. And if you want to know why did Jesus, a Jewish preacher, have the right to go onto a wealthy pig farm and destroy 2,000 pigs, the answer is Jesus owns every pig, every square inch of this world, every nation, every tribe, every people. He will do as he wants to do because he owns it all. And Jesus went into the land of the Decapolis to make something very clear. This Lord Jesus is going into an unclean land, dealing with unclean pigs and unclean spirits to cleanse it all for his glory. And that's still his strategy all around the world. He is here absolutely to take over. Now, the devil knows this better than we do. And some people think, you know, oh, I sure hope I pray enough and empower the angels instead of the demons. The devil knows that's lousy theology because they cower at the Lord Jesus Christ. In that event, in Mark chapter 5, as soon as Jesus walked up, the, the demoniac came and knelt at his feet, not out of worship, out of fear. The demons were in absolute terrified amazement at the power of Jesus Christ. They recognize power. That's all they recognize. And you know that as well as I do. When you get into rank evil, the only thing that anybody recognizes is power. And a lot of that's at play in the Middle East right now, isn't it? In some of the crazy terrorism that's going on, the only thing that's recognized is power. And that's the very nature of evil. Well, they, the demons, recognize pure, unadulterated power in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians and men can be terrified and wonder about who's in charge here. The devils do not wonder. Christ is in charge. Now notice also that not only is Jesus powerful and is completely taking over and they know it, but they can't get their hands on him either because he rises. You'll notice in verse 5, what does he do? He not only rules with an iron scepter, but he snatched up to God. 
There he goes. I, didn't, I couldn't get my hands on him. Well, actually, they, they did get their hands on him once. They, they crucified him. And if you saw the movie The Passion, you saw this figure, you know, lurking in the scenes, representing the, Satan. And uh, sure, he's there. And sure, he's very happily taking over at the moment of crucifixion. And he thinks that he has got the last word now. He killed him. Finally killed him. Pop! There he comes again. Right out of the grave. And the devil, once again, is all the more frustrated because he can't get his hands on him. So what you get in verse 5, it looks like just a, a moment. The baby is born and shoo, you know, right up to his throne. Because in the scope of eternity, the 33 years that he was here was like but a moment. But while he was here, he despoiled the satanic kingdom. He took over and he bound the evil one, as we'll see later on in Revelation that's mentioned. When Jesus came here, he did something very decisive. Now, notice in verse 6, what happens to the poor woman? <laughs> you know, there goes my baby. You know, he, he went on up there to the throne where he's going to rule, you know, and the devil can't get him anymore. But what about me, a poor, poor lady? Look what happens to her in verse 6. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Okay, God cares for us in the wilderness just as He did for Israel, just as He did for Moses, giving him manna to eat, just as He did for Elijah after Elijah's great encounter at Mount Carmel when he defeated the 850 false prophets and priests and when fire came down from heaven to consume his sacrifice to prove that his God was the true God. Then he goes off depressed, fearful, in the wilderness, trying to get away from Jezebel, and he's, he's sitting under the broom tree just sad, just being really sad. Makes no sense. Sometimes your depression doesn't make any sense either. God's on high, he's ruling, you're his, and you're sitting there depressed. Can't explain it. That's exactly the way Elijah felt. He goes into the wilderness. What does God do? He appears to him in a whisper. He appears to him. He speaks to him in a gentle voice. And he tells him to get up and go out. But before he gets up and goes out, God feeds him cakes and water. God takes care of him in the wilderness. And so, yes, we're in the wilderness and things get really tough and we're being tempted by the devil and we fall and we scratch our knee and we break our bones. And sometimes we think that it's all over. But then God comes to us and ministers to us. He does not let us uh, be destroyed. He will feed us in that wilderness for 1,260 days, which is a figure, as we've seen, which is like time, times, and half a time. You remember that 1,260 days equals 42 months, equals three and a half years. Time, times, and half a time, that's three and a half times, three uh, and a half years. 42 months, 1,260 days. All the same period. And it represents this period of being in the wilderness when we're facing the same kinds of things that Jesus faced when He was in the wilderness, and God takes us out there to take care of us. It looks like He takes us out there to be miserable. <laughs> you know, when you don't have uh, the things, the milk and honey yet, you've been told about, and you say, hey, Lord, I thought you told, when you redeemed us and brought us out of bondage of Egypt, I thought you were going to give us some milk and honey, and hey, we're going to have good old time in Canaan. Well, you're in the wilderness. You don't understand it, and you ask Him a lot of questions. He's there to preserve you and to get you ready for taking over the Holy Land. So God is caring for us in the wilderness. Now, notice verses 7-12. through 12. Let's read those verses and see that we're going to move beyond the devil confronting Christ and being a loser against Him to being a loser in heaven as well. Because what is going on is there is a spiritual reality behind the earthly reality 
that we see in these first six verses. Let's read 7 through 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So verse 9 tells you exactly what the dragon is. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Okay, what John is seeing, once again, is a recapitulation of history. He's he's described what happened on earth with the woman who had the child, Devil was seeking to, the dragon was seeking to destroy him, but no, he ascends into heaven and rules. Now John is seeing what actually happens in heaven as the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension are, are taking full account in heaven. And we're going to see the spiritual conflict that's behind the earthly reality. And sometimes we need to really think about that. You'll see all kinds of chaos on earth. What's behind all this? Well, there's a heavenly reality that's going on. Namely, Michael defeats the dragon. Michael is the archangel mentioned in Daniel, a very powerful angel. Now, some have suggested this is Christ, but I don't see any reason why we should suggest that. It seems to me that Michael is, just as Daniel presents it, an archangel, very powerful angel. The dragon not only has to deal with Jesus, but with his servants. And some of them are extremely powerful. And the angels are our servants to take care of us. So we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have Christ ruling on high. We have angels that are sent to protect us. I'm telling you, you've got more protection than you know because you're weaker than you thought. And God is more gracious than you ever imagined. So Michael defeats the dragon and hurls him to earth. And sometimes when we think about the work of Christ, we don't think about the great victory that was won at Calvary because it looks as though the devil won a victory. But what the Bible tells us is that Christ won a victory. We are told that He made a public spectacle of these powers and authorities, triumphing over them at the cross in Colossians 2.15. So He triumphed from that cross. He ruled from that cross. And when we read in the Gospel accounts that Jesus uh, expired with a, a, a... a a mighty cry, some take that as a cry of agony, megaphone, a very loud voice. But I take that to mean it was a voice of triumph. When he finally died, he ruled and he conquered all of the evil empire by his death. So what happened was when he declared himself as king by his resurrection from the dead, He ascended into heaven and took over the place, and it changed. Actually, things in heaven changed as a result of that crucifixion because you remember from Job 1, Job is before the Lord accusing Job before God and saying to God, God, if you allow me to do my worst stuff to him, he'll turn on you. So the devil was there accusing Job and saying, he's a wimp. And your salvation doesn't mean anything to him. It only means something to him because he's wealthy, healthy, and happy. You take that away and he'll, he'll curse you to your face, God. 
So he's there accusing. And you know that's how that whole thing gets started. And God, of course, proves to the angelic world and to all the cosmos that his saving power is infinite and it keeps his people even amidst their great distress. But what's happened is a result of the great victory of Christ on the cross and the, and the, and the empty grave is that the accuser now is dismissed from the heavenly places. Things have changed. And it's a glorious thing. He's hurled to the earth. What are the spiritual consequences? Heaven rejoices. The accuser is gone. Get that guy out of here. And the brothers overcame him. How? Defensively by the blood of the Lamb. You can't accuse me because the blood has been shed for me and I'm cleansed of all my sins. And yes, I did them. And yes, I'm accountable to make restitution to you guys for anything I do against you. But I'm not guilty before the throne of God. That's my defense. I know a guy who was driving down the road one day, a friend of mine, and he said that it was as though he could just see the demons coming out of the ground, accusing him, reminding him of all his sins, all the reasons that God had to condemn him to hell. He said he was just hearing like voices almost. And he had to pull his car over to the side of the road. And he just began to plead the blood of the Lamb shed for him, which was his sacrifice to pay for all those sins. And then he began to weep as he realized all those charges were the devil's best attempt to condemn him. And the devil's best attempt is not good enough to condemn a saint of God because of the blood of the Lamb. That's our defense. Our offense is the Word. The Word of our testimony. And we have a powerful testimony that we know that Christ has died for us. He's changed our lives. We're going to heaven. And we give our own testimony. It's an offensive weapon just as the Word of God. And we do not shrink from death. We cultivate that fearlessness of death itself. What do we have to fear? It's kind of like saying, you know, someone comes to you and says, you know, I'd like to take you up to a castle I've got over here in another country, and uh, it's worth about a billion dollars, and I can provide for you health so that you'll never be sick, and you'll have all your family and friends, everybody you ever loved, and there'll be no sin there. And you say, what's the catch? I mean, of course you say, what's the catch? And uh, the catch is you have to let go of the mud pies you're playing with and the dirty little house you're living in and the little job you got. You say, well, I don't know. That's the deal. We are given this exorbitantly wealthy place we're told about. And what does death mean to us? It means we get there faster. I mean, would you please figure this out? Why are we so hesitant? It's for lack of really believing what we've been told about this place. What's the catch? <laughs> you know, you got, you're going to die. One of you said to me recently that <clears throat> you're struggling with some illnesses in your own body that threaten your life. And you said, you know, Satan is an idiot. He's going to ravage my body. And as soon as he finishes his work, he's going to meet me in, in throne. At the right hand of God. (laughs) It's going to turn on his head. He's an idiot. The worst he does to me is it only gets me there faster to rule over him and all the cosmos. So we do not shrink from death. And that has a very powerful influence in the world around us. People who change the world are people who are ready to die. Did you not see this with Martin Luther King's life? Why was he powerful? Because he was ready to die. He said so the night before he died. It doesn't matter to me anymore. I've been to the mountaintop. And gentlemen, if you've been to the mountaintop and you've seen the promised land, you know you're going there. You're ready to go. Let's get on with it. 
And then even your death has a very powerful sanctifying effect. It may be the most powerful thing you can do is to die in the right way. And then you get home earlier. So what complaint do we have? It's lack of faith in the promises of God. Now, let's go on to the last section. We've got about seven minutes here. Let's look at verses 13 through 17. Um, It's true that... uh, Oh, I left off the last thing here that's important. Um, Heaven rejoices, but woe be to the earth. We better better cover that. (laughs) Heaven's real happy, gentlemen. They got rid of the accuser. Guess who got him? Guess who drew the old maid? (laughs) You got it. (laughs) It's in your hand. (laughs) You got her. The witch, the bitch, and everything else, she's after you. And fury is on the earth. And she is one ticked devil. Why? It says there in their text, in verse 16, he is filled with fury because he knows this time is short. He is ticked off. Because you may not believe his time is short, but he knows it's short. He's a better theologian than you are. He knows that he's bound. He knows that he's constrained. He knows that he's doomed. And he knows it's coming soon. And it just makes him all the more angry. So at the same time that the accuser has been dismissed from heaven and we're in a better situation, at the same time we're getting this onslaught, this flood of opposition that just seems to be completely out of line. That's what the first century was getting. And they're saying, where the heck did this come from? That's just the point. It came from hell. So... That's the problem on earth. Now, let's look lastly. The devil is a loser with Christ. He's a loser with heaven. Guess what, pal? He's a loser with you too. Look in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Satan is now after you, pal. You're all that's left. He doesn't have access to the, to the bar anymore. He's been disbarred. Can't get to heaven and accuse you. He's, he's, he's exiled from the place where he used to wreak havoc. He's ticked. Can't get his hands on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. You're it. So be ready. He takes after you. But look at this. God takes up for you. What does he do? He provides passage. Gives you the wings of an eagle to fly on. Just as he told the Israelites in Exodus 19. That he brought them on the wings of an eagle. That is, he's soaring with them and taking care of them. They're resting on his wings. And he's providing transportation for them to get to the Holy Land. He's prepared a place in the wilderness. The wilderness to you may seem like a very dry, arid, difficult, tempting, excruciating place to be. But he's got you there. You know why? It's safe. And ultimately, you want to know why you've got problems? It's because... That's what he's using to keep you in gear. And sometimes, guys, you need a few problems. (laughs) Just think what you'd be like if you didn't have any problems. You think you're bad with problems? What do you think you'd be like without problems? Uh, I know what I'd be like. And I know that in God's grace toward me, he'll use even the evil things around me to keep me in tow. And so you get some criticism. Oh, I'm so sorry. Think what you'd be like without criticism. 
So you have some pain. Oh, really? I'm sorry. What would you be like without it? He takes us to this special place called the wilderness. And he promises his presence. What do we mean by that? Well, time, times, and half a time. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's got us there for that period. And he's going to keep us there. He's going to preserve us for that period. And he's going to prevent problems. How so? Well, we're out of the serpent's reach. So the serpent can talk to you. He can allure you. He can tempt you. He can influence you. But he can't get his hands around your neck and destroy you. Why? Because the place where God has got you, it may seem kind of weird to you right now. You may not be able to explain everything. But the place where he's got you is out of the reach of the clutches of the devil who is out to steal, kill, and destroy His ultimate strategy with you is not to make life miserable. It's not to laugh at you. It's to wipe you out. But he can't get there from here. Because when Christ went to heaven, he did not abandon his children. And he's watching out for us even now. And he protects his people. How so? When the devil takes his flood of lies, his flood of diseases, anything else he thinks of, and he just opens his mouth, this big dragon, and just spews the whole flood at you. Like a tsunami. And you have absolutely no hope of escape. You were out there saying, oh, isn't it interesting? The tide went out. Look at the little fish flipping around. And you go out there, oh, this is interesting. wonder what this is all about. And all of a sudden, here comes a 20-foot wall of water. You're cooked. Except for this. The Lord is your Lord. And He will even open up the earth again. And open up that whole earth and that tsunami goes right down in the ground. And you just stand there in amazement. How'd that happen? <laughs> you don't, you don't, after something like that, you don't say, well, wasn't I smart? Uh, no, you say something unbelievable just happened. And some of you have had experiences where you know the Lord has, as it were, opened the earth to protect you from a flood from the evil one. And he will do just that as he did in number 16. You can read about the account, the account and his passage in Isaiah 43 where he says, that when you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. When you go through the waters, you will not drown. He will protect you. That's his, that's his promise when you're in the wilderness. If you belong to Him, believe me, you belong to Him. And He will not allow, allow Satan to take you. But you'll notice in verse 17, Satan hasn't given up yet. Uh, he's still determined to wipe you out. He'll still keep trying. But let me just say, the closer you walk with Christ, the more trouble you can expect. The more threat you pose to Satan's enjoyment of his evil empire that's crashing down around his ears, the more he's going to come at you. The more you assert yourself, the more opposition you should expect. And this is the reason that we're told in the Scriptures, in church leadership, you don't put men who are inexperienced or immature in in leadership because leaders are the ones whose heads are sticking above the ground. They're They're the second lieutenants. You get taken out about 30 seconds on the average. It's about, I think the life expectancy of a second lieutenant in Vietnam was somewhere around a minute in, in battle. So, you know, you don't, you don't expect to get off scot-free if you're going to assert yourself. He's after you. And he, he doesn't, he's relentless until the end because he's, he's, he's an idiot. <laughs> so he'll keep coming at you and God will keep shielding you. But God will shield you from eternal loss. He doesn't shield you from personal pain and agony, uh, nor from discipline. But, gentlemen, the point is we don't have to fear. 
Because when we give our lives to Christ, He preserves us and keeps us. And no matter what we're facing, we'll go right through it. Because He is able even to open the earth to absorb the shock of the devil's wishes for us. Calvin Coolidge, when he was vice president, he was presiding over the Senate one time. And two of the senators got into a heated debate. And one of them told the other senator to go to hell. And the offended senator looked to the, looked to the chair where Calvin Coolidge, vice president, was sitting and appealed to him. And Coolidge was just up there reading through some book. And uh, the senator said, Mr. President, President of the Senate, uh, he just told me to go to hell. And Coolidge just said, well, I'm looking here through the book, and it says you don't have to go. <laughs> and gentlemen, I just say to you, I don't care. I don't care what the devil says to you. You don't have to go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great power asserted on our behalf. And we pray that we'll trust you today and that we'll cooperate with you rather than the evil one. That we'll know the great equipment you've given us, the word of God, which is our sword, and prayer, which is calling to you for added resources and for empowerment in our lives. Help us to trust you and help us to know that even though our bodies and our outer nature waste away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day because we look not to the things that are earthbound and transient, the things in the wilderness, but rather we look to the things that are eternal, the things of the promised land. Help us to keep our focus today and to trust you as we face the onslaught and the flood of evil from the evil one himself. Help us, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Jan.